You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Hi, good evening everyone at home and thanks to everyone who has helped us so far uh, tonight. Uh, for those of you who have downloaded the, the worksheet, you'll find that there are slides for tonight. So if you miss something or it comes up on the screen, you can just look at the slides online uh, later on or as we do this. And uh, feel free to catch up on live stream if you've missed it or also uh, on, on podcasts as well on Spotify and so on. You can listen to the talks again uh, and maybe listen to them as you go for a walk or whatever. But we have done a big Bible overview. We've looked at the book of Genesis and don't worry, we're not just going to go through every book of the Bible as we've done so, but it's really helpful and important for us to look really closely at Genesis because there we, we grasp the big picture of Jesus that is to come. And then in Exodus, it's like the foundation for all of Scripture because in Exodus, there's just so much and there's so many pictures of God's grace that we can uh, use in our own Christian life that point us to Jesus. And in Exodus 19, which David read for us, the old King James Version, as some will use and have, uh, calls the people peculiar people. Uh, but we look at what that means uh, later on. But on television, on the BBC, there's a TV program called Money for Nothing. And that always sounds good, doesn't it? But in that program, what they do is that they save things that are being dumped in a Surrey a waste disposal place run by the council. And the presenters go and they pick what people have in their, their boot or in their trailer and they try and save it. They take these pieces that are seemingly, in, or seemingly useless to make something that is valuable. Making money where people thought with a little TLC there was cash to be made at the, for the end uh, of using their trash. It might be an old chest of drawers or a table designed into a park bench or something like that or an old air dryer to become a light fitting. They can do wonderful things with the pieces of rubbish that they take out of the tip. The items that were supposed to go to the dump are able to be put to great use. And that's really like us, isn't it? We are saved from the dump of hell and able to be used as God's people. God's people, Israel, are saved from the slavery of Egypt and being able to be used as God's people. You see, Israel are saved from something for something. They are saved from something, slavery, but also for something. And we've followed this family line in the book of Genesis, haven't we? Abraham and Isaac, and you'll just see if you turn to your Bible, and I hope you have Exodus open in front of you, and um, we'll have a whistle-stop tour, as David says. But in the very first uh, verse of it, we just continue on in the story from Genesis. The last verse of Genesis just says, so Joseph died, that same pattern, 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he is put in a coffin in Egypt. This is where we leave the descendants of Abraham. And what we find in the opening verses of Exodus is this family is multiplied and multiplied. God has been faithful to his promise, hasn't he? Uh, you see, uh, all the persons of Jacob were 70 people at the end of Exodus. And you see that in Exodus 1 verse 5. But now we have them multiplying and multiplying greatly so strong that the land was filled with them. They had fulfilled what God said he would do, that he would make a nation out of them. There's a great number of people, but they're in the wrong place, aren't they? It's not the land that God told them they were to, to, to live in. And while we can think of the book of Exodus sometimes as a book about Moses, can't we? 
Because he seems to be the main character, but he's really not. The main character, yeah, in a human sense, we could say is Moses. But like every other book in the Bible where Esther was the unseen God, Exodus is really the seen God throughout. And well, as we read the book of Exodus, what kind of things should we be looking out for as you read it at home? Well, here's just a couple of things to highlight, and we've seen them already in Exodus 19. Look out for covenant language. Now, what do I mean by that? Whenever God or Moses says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're referring to the promises God had made to them. The land I have promised you, or you'll be my people, I will be your God, things like that. That's covenant language. Uh, remembering what God had already promised to them. What else do we see? We see God's holiness throughout. Just in that passage of Exodus 19, the people had to consecrate themselves, had to make themselves holy, to cleanse themselves. That's what God requires, how God is to be approached in the book of Exodus. We see God's holiness. And then we see God's presence. We know very famously in the the fire and the, the cloud, but where and how is God seen? and how God is with his people. Those are things that we need to watch out for in the book of Exodus. But as we read the rest of Scripture, what else should we look out for? Well, we look out for pictures of Exodus in the rest of the Bible. We just had a a brief glimpse of that today in feeding the 5,000 bread from heaven as Jesus multiplies the bread, and, well, it's manna from heaven in Exodus. And all in all, the the whole book of Exodus, we could put under this theme, I think. Knowing God and making him known. Knowing God and making him known. It's a good tagline for our church, isn't it? It's good enough for God's people in Israel. It should be good for us too. Throughout the book of Exodus, God is revealing himself to us, to, to Moses and the Hebrews and the Egyptians In Genesis, we get the storyline, we get the promises, we get a hint of what God might be like, but in Exodus, we get very clear indications for us what exactly God is like, who he really is. So tonight, as we look at the the book of Genesis, we're going to do do it under four headings. In the first three, we're going to be cutting the book into three. The first uh, one is the rescue by God in chapters 1 to 18. You could entitle that subsection of the book, The Rescue by God. And when the time comes, uh, God willing, in my own congregation, I think I do a sermon series on this and call it, I'm a Hebrew, get me out of here. Because that's exactly what's going on here. Because this isn't the land that God had promised to Abraham. There's a whole nation of people, but they are in the wrong place. They need to get out of there, and they need to get out of there because of their slavery to Pharaoh too, don't they? But this first section of Exodus, it does give us the Exodus, the exit out of Egypt. And for many of us eh, who have taught Sunday school even as well, this seems to be the only story in Exodus, isn't it? But you notice it's not even half the book. Why does God even bother with the rest of it? Well, we'll come to discover that. Why does God bother with this nation of nomads without permanent residency or who have been enslaved to God seems to have forgotten about at this point, surely. Why does God bother with his people Israel? Turn with me to Exodus 2. He does so out of his covenant love. Exodus 2, uh, verses 23 and 25. During those many days the king of Egypt died, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. 
their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Not just amazing. God heard this, saw them, and it's just God knew. God knew exactly what to do. He does all this out of his covenant love. When he speaks to Moses later, and to, as Moses takes God's word to the people, it's, out of, it's because of God's love, God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that God bothers with his people. It's why God is going to rescue his people. And in these opening chapters of, of, of Exodus, we see we're introduced to the situation here in chapter 1 that Pharaoh forget, forgets about Joseph, and we have this birth of the little baby Moses. It really seems like a hopeless situation. But even in the middle of slavery, there are faithful midwives. There's the birth of a baby boy, Moses, and in place in a basket, which is really the word ark. And we've come across that recently, haven't we? But in the first seven chapters, we have just the context and the introduction to Moses, his birth, his fleeing, his call to go to, to go and work for God at the burning bush and his return to tell the people of Israel. Moses has already tried to rescue his people in his own strength. You remember he buried an Egyptian in the sand. But while he's in the wilderness, he, he marries and God makes himself known to him. Moses makes God known to the Hebrew people. In chapter 5, Pharaoh says, I do not know the Lord. And when, that's when Moses asked, could they go and worship God? Could they go and know God? And by the end of chapter 5, it doesn't seem very likely that Pharaoh will cave in. But the Lord promises to remember his covenant, which sets us up for, in chapter 7, the plagues and escape. Throughout these chapters in Exodus, Pharaoh is really set up for us as the anti-God character, isn't he? He clearly is against God's people, Israel, and he clearly is anti-God. And well, what was, the, what was the symbol for Pharaoh? It's in ancient Egypt, it's a rearing cobra, one that's ready to strike, a sign of, for them, royalty, deity, and authority. It's a serpent king, isn't it? Like the garden, a serpent. And God knows that it will take all these plagues before Pharaoh will let God's people go. And why does God send these plagues? Just notice also that... Moses calls them signs and wonders, and that's important in John's gospel, but in Exodus 7, verse 5, why does God send these plagues? In Exodus 7, verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord God when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring our people, the children of Israel, from among them. Just like everybody else, Moses and the Hebrews, everyone will know that God is the Lord. So at the end of this age, whenever Christ gathers his church, the church for all eternity, then everyone too will know God. And these plays, I, I, we don't need to go through them. You can read them. But you can see the repetitiveness of them all. It kind of follows a similar pattern. Moses, let my people go. Pharaoh, no. And then sometimes the magicians try to mimic the plagues. And at the end of every plague, we have this refrain, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened, or God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Every time, Pharaoh's heart grows harder and harder. It seems a couple of times that Pharaoh might let them go, 
if this plague stops, but he just uh, ignores his word whenever the plague is over. That is all true until the death of the firstborn. That final plague where we have the, the Passover meal in chapter 12. And we all know that story so well, don't we? We all know the blood of that sacrificial lamb painted on the doorposts so that the firstborn would live, that redemptive blood on the doorpost pointing us forward to, well, the Passover lamb of Jesus. That's what the Passover is preparing us for. It's the sacrificial lamb pointing us to Jesus. And then eventually, after the Passover, after the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh lets them go. And after they go, it's not long till they're gone. In chapter 14, they haven't quite crossed the Red Sea, but they're grumbling. They just want to be slaves again. In chapter 14, verse 12, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we might serve the Egyptians. For it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. The people didn't want to know. But what did Moses say to the people in the next verse? Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. This is just a story, even in our own life, you get rescued, you're saved from our sin, and then we're like, oh, I just want to go back to my own life. It'd be far better than this torture, this trying to live for God. Moses says, look to God for salvation. Look to Jesus. And then we cross the Red Sea, and then the book ends, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. We often think so, because we forget so much more. We have the Ten Commandments and the cast, but there's even more than that. How we are missing uh, much of God's Word. Remember, we are rescued from something and to something. And then in, after they cross the Red Sea in 15, uh, 22, 15, we have the Song of Moses, to 18, we have this journey to Sinai where we have more grumbling and there's water and bread provided for uh, the people by God, pointing us again forward to Jesus. And well, the rescue of Israel, it is a, a big picture, isn't it? Of rescue from slavery to the safety of getting across the other side of the Red Sea. It's a picture of our lives, our spiritual lives, isn't it? We were enslaved to, to sin, enslaved to the serpent king, yet we are brought out so that we, as we'll discover, to serve the king of kings. We have a clear picture of Jesus in this story in the Passover lamb and how we uh, as Christians are brought out of slavery uh, to God. So we have the rescue by God. And then in the next section, 19 to 24, we have the covenant with God. The covenant with God. And all these chapters now take place in and around Mount Sinai. And in chapter 19, you can glance your eye down it and poor old Moses, he's 80 at this point, Mount Sinai is about the height of Slave Donard, and Moses is up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down this mountain, over and over and over again. And these next chapters are focused on this covenant. And what is that covenant? It's the agreement between God and man, that, we, that God will promise blessings if conditions are kept. And here we have a covenant that builds on the others, as we have already seen. So if we go back to Genesis 3, we have the covenant of grace, the first proclamation of the gospel. We must trust in this offspring to defeat the serpent. And then with Abraham, we have the continuation of that. But with Abraham, we get a deeper and fuller understanding of it. There's going to be a people and a place and, and the blessing of God's presence. 
But in Abraham's covenant, he had to be obedient, didn't he? He had to go. He had to leave his hometown. He had to be circumcised. In Genesis 17, God tells Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. What does that mean? What does that look like for Abraham? How are God's people to be obedient and follow the Lord? If they are to be blessed, they are to obey. How does that look like? Well, this is where the law comes in, the, the Mosaic Covenant in these chapters. Now we get a greater clarity of what it means to obey God. We get a greater understanding of what it means to follow God. We did number one last week in our Bible Mass to put God number one. That's the first one, these ten commandments. And then we have more laws with civic duty and how to worship. And the law, what does it do? Well, it gives us a richer and deeper understanding of what's expected of us, yes. But it gives us a deeper understanding of Jesus, the Messiah. Why? Well, in the law we see what God's expectations are for holiness. How we fall so short of that. How we cannot fulfill God's law. It points out our sin and our need of Jesus. And Jesus is the only one who ever perfectly fulfilled and kept the law. He keeps the law perfectly. He fulfills all the cleansing that we can come to God through him. We don't need to sprinkle blood anymore. But Jesus' blood has been sprinkled for us. God's people are rescued for a purpose. From something for something. And what is that? Well, let's just look at a couple of verses in Exodus 19. Verses 4 to 6. That's really important as we d discuss this, that the law comes after grace. God has already rescued them, hasn't he? In chapters 1 to 18, God has rescued them. And in verse 4, how does God describe that rescue? On eagles, on wings of eagles. You know, it's like the, the military extraction going to, 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 to raid a, a, a camp in the, the Middle East who have hostages there. They're going to extract them out and lift them up and away. They're going in to rescue a captured people. And what a picture the Lord gives us to be lifted high and away above harm. But the eagle's not just flying there, sure it's not. Where does the eagle land? To God. I bore you an eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Full redemption to God, not just out of slavery, not just out of sin, but to God. What a picture that is. And well, how does God describe his people then? He does so in three ways. Okay, he calls them firstly his Israel, his treasured possession, doesn't he? God says that you are people that are precious to me. You know, these are uh, a particular people for God. And he says, you're my treasured possession. You know, it's that question, if your house was burning tonight, what one thing would you save? And I don't know what it would be for you. It might be the keys to your car, or it might be a, a pram or something. I'm not sure. But God says to this people, Israel, you, you are my treasured possession. Then he describes them as a kingdom of priests. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. What was a priest's job? A priest was to uh, represent God to the people, weren't they? To proclaim his word. But they also were that intercession between the people and God through sacrifice and prayer. 
to make God known to the people, God says, you're going to be my kingdom of priests. He says, you're going to be my holy nation, my sanctified nation, the, the nation that is different from every other nation. For you will have the experience of God living amongst you. God describes these peculiar, his particular people as his treasure possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Peter, in his letter, applies this to the church of Jesus as well. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are God's treasure possession, his kingdom of priests, his holy nation as his church. God rescues the people from slavery, but also to serve him, to make him known. The people of Israel are given this law, and they are to follow it because, well, they are now part of God's house. If you like, they are to live as part of God's family and live under his family rules because they are his treasured possession, the kingdom of priests and his holy nation. I remember in school we hosted a, a rugby tour, and we hosted many, but my, my first one we had boys stay with us where I was in fifth form, we had two New Zealand guys stay with us. But even before the touring party from Auckland uh, came to Armagh, they first stopped off in London as part of their uh, the British and Irish tour. And they stopped off in London and they had a party, a party that was, well, so devastating in many ways that it made the news. And in preparation for them coming over, uh, I was 15, a wise man came to me uh, and I guess he was concerned that I would waver in my faith or some way or be tempted in some way. And speaking of them coming over and staying with us in our house, he said to me, David, you live with the rules of your house. What did he mean? He meant, David, don't be getting involved in all the partying, all the shenanigans that might be going on. David, don't fall into temptation. You live differently. You have a different set of rules to obey and to follow. And there's a sense here in which God is saying, you're my sons and daughters, live by my family rules. And we'll see later on in the Old Testament, problems are encountered when they aren't that holy nation, when they aren't cleansed, whenever they are living with foreigners with different rules, when they worship different gods. As is applied to Israel, applies to us today, that we must love Jesus and obey Jesus. That obedience is that visible confirmation that we are and we do have faith, that we have a genuineness to our faith. You will love me if you keep my commands. And that what Jesus says, this new life is a life of obedience to God. In the law, we see God's holiness. We see God moving us from not just a family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but to a nation and understanding what sin is and to follow and obey God's law is a sign that we have faith. It gives us greater clarity what it means to obey God. But we have this law, the commandments given after grace. And in Exodus 19, as David read, towards the end, uh, the last half of that chapter, 
God and Moses are explaining to the people that they need to cleanse themselves, don't they? They aren't able to approach God, only Moses and then only Aaron. But that all changes in Exodus 24. So they've cleansed the people. They have the law. And then in Exodus 24, in verse 6, we read a remarkable story. Uh, Sorry, Exodus 24, verse 6. And Moses took half the blood and put it in the basins, and half the blood and put it uh, and threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took uh, took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses sprinkles the blood on the, the seat of atonement where their sins are cleansed. And then he sprinkles the blood on the people that they are cleansed by the blood, pointing us to Jesus, what his blood does. There's that sprinkled blood and then that, those words, the blood of the covenant that Jesus uses uh, in the Last Supper. But then read on, verse 9. So there's only Moses and Aaron allowed to go see God before. What do we have here? We have 70 of the elders went up. They saw the God of Israel. Under, their, under his feet there's a pavement of, of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Do you remember before in 19, they were going to be struck down if they did? Not anymore because of the blood. They beheld God and ate and drank. There was a meal with God. They sat down uh, having a, a meal with God. Pointing us forward to this, the Last Supper, yes, the cleansing of the blood, but also to that final meal, the wedding feast of the Lamb of Revelation, where we'll be sitting with God eating and drinking in this wedding feast. The covenant with God that a holy God would want a treasured possession for himself to to make him known throughout all the world, that they would be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, standing up and above everything else. And we, because the church are now that nation, as it were, as God's people, a royal priesthood, We are to bring God to others. We are to bring people to God. We are to pray for others. That's why it's so heartwarming to hear of the opportunities in Slovenia. They are fulfilling part of what God wants them to be. Then in chapters 25 through to 40, we have the dwelling place of God. Isn't it utterly remarkable how many chapters are given over to the building of the tabernacle, isn't it? You know, how many chapters would we want to see what the Garden of Eden is really like? Wouldn't we want a, a, you know, a, a novel-like extract that shows us the picture and the glory and the splendor of what the views of Eden might have been like? What color was the green grass or what was so beautiful about it? But we get nothing. Here we get chapter after chapter about the building of the tabernacle. And we might find some of these details boring or repetitive, but it's God's word. Not a word is wasted by the Lord. Just often we choose to waste the words. But what we learn in these chapters is that God wants to dwell with his people. It's very simple. What we learn in these last 15 chapters or so is that God wants to dwell with his people. 
He wants to live amongst them in close proximity, just like the Garden of Eden, just like the new heavens and new earth. And Exodus clearly shows us the importance of the tabernacle. So much attention is given to it. How the tent and furnishings should be made in chapters 25 to 31. And then in chapters 35 to 40, we give a, we're given a description of the tabernacle's construction. You know, it was the courtyard, the, the holy place, the holy of holies. What was inside was really important. How it was decorated is really important. Where the entrance was is really important. All these instructions are given uh, for the people to build the dimensions of the tabernacle. There's instructions for the furniture, and all of which is really highly symbolic. Moses gives them instructions for the priests and what they should wear. And well, we could spend ages going through the tabernacle, but a good Bible study, or a good study Bible, sorry, will do that for you and point out the symbolism well. But God desires to dwell with his people, to be in the midst of that holy of holies, that there be a place for them to sacrifice, a place for the priests to serve. God desires to dwell with his people. Why? So that they might worship him. They might worship him. The people are saved from Egypt to obey, to be a kingdom of priests, to serve and worship the Lord. And well, God instructs Moses how they are to worship, where God is going to dwell. But, well, we all know the story that Israel tries to do that for themselves, don't they? In chapters 32 to 34, we have this small interlude, if you like, where the covenant is broken and renewed. The people are building this golden calf, and God is angry, isn't he? You meet those chapters later and how Moses intercedes for the people in the midst of an angry God for their sin. Again, we have an intercessor in Jesus. He intercedes for us with a God who should be angry at us, yet who shows grace just like God does in Exodus 34. He doesn't wipe out Israel as he could, but he extends grace to them. In Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before him and, uh, uh, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is our God. In Genesis, we get very little picture of what God is like. And here, we've God describing himself just a little bit. Compassionate caring, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast, abounding in covenant love and faithfulness. The dwelling place of God is the tabernacle, not a statue for the people. God wants to live with his people. He wants to, to dwell with them, not in a statue, but a, a tent, as simple as it might look. But the design was for God's glory. The dwelling place of God is the tabernacle, not a statue, not with this golden calf. And then those last chapters are concerned with the building and the making, how God gifted the people to fulfill different roles, like how different parts of the body fulfill roles, as is the church today. And in Exodus 40, the very last verses of Exodus, the glory of God that has been following them about Remembering the pillar of fire and cloud, that is God's presence with them. The glory of God fills the temple to show them that God is clearly living in their midst. It's supposed to be a constant reminder for them 
of God's presence. In verse 38, the very last verse, for the cloud of the Lord that was on Sinai was on the tabernacle by day, but they would physically be able to see it during the day, and the fire was in it by night, that they would be able to see at night, even at night, in the darkest hour, God was with them. God's presence was with them. Well, what does that got to do with us? Well, does not point forward to God coming amongst us in his son Jesus. In John's gospel, he talks about being dwelling amongst us or tabernacling among us. Then we have the outpouring of the Spirit which lives in us. We are the living stones. First Peter again tells us that we are the tabernacle. We are the church. We are God's treasured possession. We have God's presence in us and with us. Not just in a tent that we can visibly see in microfelt, but in our very hearts, longing for a day that we would be able to see the glory of God. Then finally, just tonight, we just want to think about the echoes of Exodus. Do you know, sometimes you get deja vu, and you think, I know exactly what they're going to say right now, or I've definitely heard that before. Well, that's what the book of Exodus is like if we read Scripture too, isn't it? Because, well, Exodus, it is a story of slavery, isn't it? Of God saving people from slavery, and that is a picture of a greater Exodus for us, isn't it? And our, our being ex, getting that exit from sin through Jesus. In Exodus 2, we have the story of what? A serpent king looking to kill all the male Hebrew children. What do we have in Matthew's gospel? Well, we have a Jewish king, a king of Israel, looking to kill all the male children. In Exodus 3, we have the wonderful, I am who I am. In John's gospel, what do we have over and over again? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. John's given us a hint of who Jesus is. The plagues or the signs, they were to know God. Well, John's gospel, all his miracles, what does he call them? He calls them signs, pointing to who Jesus is, that he is compassionate, strong, and kind, that he is God. The Passover, well, Jesus as the Passover lamb, isn't it? That lamb who was slain for us. There's manna in the wilderness. There's water too. There's Jesus feeding the 5,000. The law which shows God's holiness and what he expects of us and while we praise Jesus that he fulfills the law for us. In Exodus 24, we have eating with the Lord, and well, we look forward to that wedding supper of the Lamb. The tabernacle, God's presence with us and amongst us, while Jesus did come and live amongst us, and the Holy Spirit dwells within us. See how Exodus is a story of a picture and an illustration of our story with sin, how God rescues us, from slavery of sin to life and service for him. Exodus, Peter tells us that we are a peculiar people. Not odd, although maybe you like me can think of lots of peculiar people. But are you? Are you that treasure possession that God wants us to be and being kingdom of priests, being a holy nation, are we knowing God and making him known? 
as was the instruction of Israel and the church. Are you peculiar in that way? Or are you just like everyone else? Just going with the flow, not any different, not a holy nation, not a kingdom of priests, just boring, old, same old as everyone else. Or are you peculiar as God's treasured possession where he longs for us to know him and make him known? We praise God for his word in Exodus that points us to Jesus, that great redemptive story that we have. And we're going to sing together, and then I'll close in a prayer. We're going to sing together, He is mighty to save. Thank you.